Welcome to Chronicles, a podcast about real people with real stories, having real conversations on health. My name is Chantal Boyson. I'm a global mental health advocate who loves to travel just as much as I love binge watching documentaries on my couch. Hi, my name is Michaela Newman, based in Geneva, Switzerland, but originally from Austin, Texas. I am the daughter of a man living with HIV and bipolar disorder and a global health advocate. Uh, I've recently finished Atypical on Netflix, which was very cute, and I'm reading the memoir by Stephen King on writing, which is a nice new challenge to face. I'm Maya Olson. I'm a global health advocate, a cancer survivor, and someone living with a serious chronic immune disorder. I am based in Boston, where it's currently cold and rainy, so I'm looking forward to a day of Netflix binging and reading. Hi guys, my name is Joab Wako. I'm an industrial engineer living with a kidney transplant here in Nairobi, Kenya, and I'm happy to be on this podcast. It's rainy as well here in Nairobi, Kenya, but we're hoping for some sunshine because in December it's our summer, I guess. I just realized that I didn't mention that I'm from Durban, South Africa, and I think it is important mainly because our podcast is focused on non-communicable diseases, but also we all from different countries and based in different cities, which makes it equally unique and challenging. (laughs) So in our previous episode, we talked about being diagnosed with or or knowing of somebody being diagnosed with uh, non-communicable diseases while young. And I think during that conversation, we also touched quite strongly on stigma. And we thought that this episode we would explore a bit more about stigma and really just kind of look at the very degrees of stigma that presents itself in society and cultures and maybe just in also just, you know, how it follows us and how we experience it every day. So I had, um, I had a very specific um thought that I wanted to share and this was really regarding my own diagnosis of bipolar disorder which I officially got about three and a half years ago and I've been finding this very bizarre level of stigma around medication and it's been this weird subject which I have not heard a lot of people talk enough about especially because medication has got such yeah it's got a lot of stigma to it It, like to being on medication having a mental illness and taking medication or not taking medication either way you have some level of stigma which puts it in a very precarious situation and I've I've experienced that on uh, on so many different in so many different ways. And one particular I remember I was at the pharmacy, and I had my monthly script which I got from my psychiatrist, 
And I remember going to the pharmacy and I presented my script to her and she looked at me with a question mark on her face and asked me whether I wanted all of this medication with an emphasis on the all. And I was a little bit perplexed with her question and I'm and I asked her like I don't understand what you mean. She's like I'm just trying to understand do you want all of these medications all of this. I was actually taken aback so badly because it's gut-wrenching because this is this is the stuff that I take to keep myself healthy. And I basically got pull shamed by the pharmacist. And I got very upset and I ended up telling her to, or I basically said, listen, I am going to step out and get a cup of coffee. Please, can you dispense my script as it is without any questions or any comments? I'm going to get coffee, come back and collect this because I like can't deal with the way that you are dealing with me right now. And it struck me because like how dare she make me feel ashamed for having medication and putting me in that position when she's a pharmacist and she should just be giving me my script. It's as easy, just dispense and go. I didn't ask for comments. I didn't ask for any inputs from her. Uh, she's not my doctor. I was just flabbergasted. And it also made me realize the challenge of other people, some people not even being able to get medication for various other reasons. And then when you get medication, this is the kind of attitudes that you get around it. And this is one example that I can, you know, that I can tell you about. But I don't know what your experiences are. Two different examples kind of have been on my mind in thinking about a stigma. Uh, but one in reaction to, to what you've shared, it, it was an example from just last year, 2018, where my father was off his medication. And that's a, a recurring um, challenge that we face as a family. And we were checking in. Uh, my mother and I to a hotel before leaving for our flights. We'd visited Toronto to see my father and my grandmother, and it had been a very, very difficult trip. So we were spending the night in a hotel before leaving, and my father was just meant to drop us off. And he was wearing a woman's shirt and a, a sun hat and, uh, you know, very kind of eccentric, and, and he was getting very impatient with the with the wait to check into the hotel and he started muttering under his breath, you know, uh, it's taking too long. It's too long. You know? And so, um, you know, I knew that this was not going to go well. And we, when we did get to the front desk, he immediately started accusing the, the woman at the, at the front desk for error, for not moving quickly enough. They couldn't find our booking reservation. And he started to get very angry and accusatory and this is always a challenging situation. Um, so you're trying to temper, uh, well, in, my, in this case, I'm trying to temper my father, but also to let this woman know, please do not take this personally. I'm very sorry. We will just check in. Let's get our reference number. I'm very, very sorry, all of this. Uh, but there was a woman next to us who, who turns to me and she looks at me and she goes, 
what's wrong with your father? Is he crazy or something? He should be on medication. No, 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 no. And with a minute that said to me, I'm like, <laughs> you know, you're, you're balancing so many different things. But I turned to her and I said, woman, stay out of this. You know, this is, this is not your place. Uh, you have me and my mother trying to manage my father and, you know, to get involved or to create an audience, it's such an extra pressure and it shows a complete lack of empathy for the different challenges that people are facing. Um, and that that was a, a, a huge example of just society showing a lack of, 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 of empathy um, for what was going on. And um, luckily, we did receive later a, a kind gesture from the hotel manager because, of course, it's never over quickly um, when there are these episodes. And we had checked into the hotel. I had immediately told my father to leave. My mother and I had enough, um, unfortunately, uh, to drive home. And I turned to my mother and I said, I don't think it's over yet. And the next thing you know, we have a call from the, the hotel manager asking us to leave the premise. And I tell her, please understand that he's not staying here. Can we please stay? Um, and she was understanding that, okay, these two people need need a, a place to stay tonight. And, you know, it's okay. But uh, these challenges are, are so regular and so difficult to face when it's someone that you love, um, but also someone that you're really struggling to love in that moment. So you're defending them, but also trying to ease the the, the environment for other people. Um, and it goes down to, you know, yeah, the solution society often still imposes is medication. So it's interesting that um, to the degree that being on regular prescriptions to manage any type of illness is sometimes frowned upon. Uh, and even working in global health, working with uh, pharmaceuticals is often a challenging area but they do help to to pharmaceuticals do help to temper uh, illnesses and diseases and a lot of people get involved in these industries because they want to do good yes they make money but uh, that's a tricky one to balance I think for me I sort of have had a really different experience with stigma I think having a cancer that is considered a childhood cancer a lymphoma that that isn't necessarily associated with with risk factors that um, I could have done anything about. Um, and just cancer in general, when young, I kind of, no one has has ever blamed me for, for getting lymphoma. And certainly when you have cancer, no one blames you for, for not pursuing treatment, for not going forward with chemo and um, radiation and whatever it, whatever it is that you need for your prognosis. I think what I struggled the most with was the, and I know I, I talked about this um, while we were all in Geneva, the kind of battle and war metaphors that are attached to cancer. There's a very specific narrative that kind of everyone's dealt with cancer in some way through somebody. Um, it's, it's one of those diseases very much unlike mental health or HIV that everyone sort of rallies around you and they want something to fight. They want to win. They want like someone's fighting a battle against cancer. Someone is um, a survivor or lost or like everything is in these terms that when I was going through it, 
the thing that I had the hardest time with was it was my job to make everyone else feel better about what was happening to me. Um, and there was so much pressure on me to be a good cancer patient, to be positive and brave and strong kind of at every moment. And I would have so many social interactions where someone would um, ask me how I was doing. And I always sort of sat there in that moment, because in that moment, I probably felt like crap. I um, was, I could hardly walk out because I had heartburn and constipation and I had thrush in my mouth and I was tired and exhausted and scared and um, like there were physical symptoms. There was so much going on with me emotionally. And there were so many times in that moment that I wanted to scream like, I'm not doing okay. I'm not feeling okay. I, um, but you had to kind of swallow all of that and be like, it's fine. I'm okay. It's not so bad. I'm going to be okay. Like you would have to comfort them. And I remember being really frustrated with that in the moment. And then I think I was almost as frustrated as I sort of, I, I got through it. I ended up in, um, in remission. It was a huge, wonderful thing. Um, but if you have cancer that doesn't just turn off the second you get your kind of clean bill of health, you're always at risk for, um, you have to kind of follow your health in a different kind of way in terms of looking out for recurrence. There's so much of the emotional baggage kind of carries with you. Um, it impacts kind of their kind of PTSD responses in various ways. But for everyone else, I had one. And so the the kind of support system just vanished the second that I was okay. And then no one wanted to hear me talk about it or what I was struggling with. Or, um, and so kind of that piece of it was was challenging. I didn't really know what my place was in the narrative that sort of attached to cancer at that point. But I think through all of this, the kind of biggest reason why I've always pushed back against that sort of battle language and the way cancer is framed is sort of knowing really acutely that in going through chemo and going through radiation, if there was nothing that I did that someone who dies of cancer doesn't, you don't really have a lot of options on treatment. Um, you have absolutely no way to control what your prognosis looks like or how intensely your cancer presents, whether or not treatment helps. Um, and so for me, who I'm proud of what I endured, and there were moments that I can look back and say I was really strong in that moment. A lot of the times I didn't feel very strong or very brave or um, positive, um, but I got to be okay. And so someone there was someone I went to college with who was someone I really, really admired. He was an activist and just this magnetic personality and he didn't make it. And that was really hard to see him have to also deal with that. He wrote something right before he died of kind of no one can tell me I lost my battle because it really wasn't my choice. And so he sort of did uh, he kind of eulogized himself and said, these are all of the wonderful experiences I've had. I lived a full life. I'm choosing to stop treatment because um, because I want to die alongside my family, not in the middle of chemo 
not sort of racking my body for the last little bit. Um, and so it sort of, he had to reclaim that it was okay not to do treatment. I never had to do that, but to see him so beautifully kind of speak to the things that had I had really struggled with being okay and going through it was was a really bittersweet thing. And so I think what I've always tried to do with kind of people who have come into my orbit who are either dealing with cancer or have had people um, in their families that are going through it is sort of, I've rejected those terms. And when people want to say kind of battle or they want to use that for their own identity, that's wonderful. They kind of, anyone should be able to claim claim their identity how they want. Um, but I've sort of avoided kind of in, in the memory of, of this person in my life, kind of avoided that myself, but also trying to m- make sure that someone has, feels like they have the ability to complain and to not, like, I found it really helpful when other people told me I was going to be okay, but when I had to tell people I was going to be okay, when I was feeling as vulnerable as I was, that was really hard. So I've tried to sort of approach things of trying, trying to make a safe space for someone to deal with some of the harder things or be able to talk about that. I kind of think about the circle of grief. There's this metaphor where the person going through it um, should be able to look outward to support, not have to take on other people's grief. Um, And so trying to kind of make it a, make a safe space for, for someone to deal with that struggle um, and never sort of ask them to make you feel better. So it's not kind of stigma exactly in the way that that you guys have have dealt with with your father and in your own story, but um, it kind of it's what resonated for me with this question of of kind of challenge challenging public perception. And for me, I I would say that when this question when we started discussing what we're going to talk about in this podcast and. We say we're going to talk about stigma. I researched the different types of stigma, and I found this website. I'm not saying that it's credible, but it, it kind of got my mind going on stigma, because for me, my journey started about five years ago. You know, I was healthy, and then all of a sudden, I'm told my kidneys have failed, and I'm put on dialysis. So this website talks about three types of stigma, right? And I'm just going to read through it briefly. Because it says that humans possess a deeply embedded need to belong. Feeling loved and needed brings confidence and happiness. When the need to interact and belong is denied through stigmatization, it can have disastrous consequences to the mental and even physical health of the stigmatized person. Stigmas have caused untold amounts of pain and death, but they can also be beneficial. So it goes into a bit more, but... I wanted to focus on the three types of stigma, and I think today we're talking mostly about external stigmas, which are socially embedded stigmas, and they say that stigmas are communal, communally defined by the group of people, and they usually function to solidify an in-group by distinguishing people from an out-group. So for me, this is what really resonated, because I think when we're talking about health and more specifically chronic illnesses, the end people at this point would be someone who's healthy, someone who has 
yeah, they don't have really long-standing issues like we do. You know, like for me, as an example, with chronic kidney disease, I'm not in because my kidneys aren't functioning. So I have this kind of I'm different from what is considered normal in the society, and that's why we're stigmatized. And my example in this kind of stigma would be when I found out I'm diagnosed with kidney disease, and literally after I was after I was discharged from the hospital, I go back to work the next week on Monday, and that first day, everything was slightly different. Like the way people treated me was so different, and yeah, I'm sure they knew what was going on with me, but for me, I. I guess my condition hadn't really sunk in and they let the whole day go the work environment like my my boss my um the human resources everyone kind of was just observing me during day one and then the next day i had a meeting with the human resource manager and and my direct supervisor and i remember her asking me can you handle it can you handle your position with your illness now and to me that kind of touches on external stigmas because i didn't feel different but then they saw me differently now i had a chronic illness that would affect my i guess my performance at work but it hadn't really happened yet you know they hadn't really seen me do my work and say that oh he's not going to be able to do it it was too early on and so for me, I was a bit confused at that point because I, I didn't see the difference yet. And I remember kind of going into myself and panicking a bit because now I'm with my human resource manager and I'm with my supervisor. And they're in that room looking at me, asking me if I can handle my condition and work. So immediately I tell them I don't think I can handle it because I'm not sure. You know, I don't want to, I didn't want to say I can handle it and later be told you can't handle it. So I, I kind of picked the safe answer and said, I don't think I can. And that's when we started talking about how I'm going to take a, a junior role. I'm going to kind of be an intern more than the junior industrial engineer that I was. So it, it kind of hurt, but I feel that that was the beginning of my journey with chronic kidney disease and basically with stigma, stigmatization because they didn't really know like how much I would take and neither did I but I feel like they could have worked better with me you know through the process because it's it's something that takes time you know before you can tell someone hey you can't do this you it would take time for you to notice and say okay this is what I you know they didn't have any proof but that was my experience with external stigmas and I feel like a lot of us resonate even Michaela with your dad that's an external stigma because the person doesn't really understand what your dad's going through or even with Chantel, like the person at the pharmacies, the pharmacy didn't know, you know, that you're actually managing your condition with these medicines. They kind of just judged you automatically based on what you're getting, you know. And that's something we all struggle with. Even with my, I'm sure you can relate with what I'm saying. But another form of stigma, and this for me was interesting, is internal stigma. And it says stig- stigmatized individuals often internalize a stigma they experience. And so it comes from someone doing something on the outside and then internally you start to change. And it says first the person internalizes the stigma and feels loss of control. And you accept that you've been 
I guess, reduced. Because a lot of times stigmatization kind of makes you feel inferior. And this leads to self-perception of shame, guilt, and fear, which leads to protective action. And usually the individual avoids others and living and lives in isolation. So this is one of the most powerful things about stigmatization is that it, it makes you isolate yourself. And I feel that to me, one thing I, I really started to understand is that when you don't feel like you fit in, like you belong, like you have a community, then internally you start to retract and you feel like you're alone because you, you don't feel like you can go out and, and talk to someone and really start to, I guess, open up about this condition. And with a chronic disease like mine, with chronic kidney disease and eventually getting a transplant, I feel that most of my external stigmas revolve around my health and whether I'll survive and all these stories of rejection and how long an organ lasts, you know, it's it's that stigmatization of you're not healthy and you probably never will be again makes me internalize that and I kind of isolate myself because at that point you feel like there's no one who would understand what you're going through. And that's the danger about stigmas is that when we internalize them, they change how we perceive ourselves and our confidence levels, our how we, we value ourselves, you kind of lose that. And in losing that, you, you lose your, 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 your self-worth. And, and that's one thing that I feel we, we need to really address in terms of stigmatization and non-communicable diseases, chronic illnesses. You know, these long-term things we go through, if we don't speak about it, it, which often when we talk about these conditions, I feel like the stigma then becomes more because then someone will know that you're going through something. And I think for me, as an example, if I walk in somewhere, people don't really know that I have a kidney transplant until I open up. And then when you open up, I don't know if anyone else experiences this, but then is when you get that stigmatization of all these beliefs that people have or had or I had from someone who had from someone. I kind of get that a lot, where for me, until I open up, then that people now start giving me all these kind of generic answers that they've had. And that is the beginning of changing those stigmas. But then for us as champions or as people who openly talk about our conditions, I feel like we need to pull close together and actually really form a strong base so that we can talk about this. And this this podcast really helps because when I hear someone else's perception of stigma, I, I start to resonate with it and feel, okay, I'm not alone in this. And that brings a community so that I can open up to people and educate people because it says that towards the end, the only way to overcome stigma is through education. And anti-stigma advocate runs raising awareness on the struggles of the stigmatized. So we definitely have to speak about it. But in opening up, we make ourselves more vulnerable. And so you kind of have to have a counter to that and have a community so that you can build a strong base so that you can go out some more, even though when you open up, there's going to be more stigma towards you because now people know that, hey, you're going through this. Where before, they might have not known, you know. So. That's that's my take on, on stigmatization and my example. I feel that we definitely need to talk more about it, but talking about it 
is difficult because I feel like it opens up Pandora's box on stigma and you get more stigma instead of less in the beginning until people start to understand the condition and what you're going through and the stigma you're facing. And yeah, that's that's what I would say about stigma and how it's changed my life in regards to my chronic illness. I definitely relate to everyone. I think the thing that 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 I came to learn is that you know the average person on the street or the average person that you meet specifically for me you know when in my advocacy in mental health unless it personally touched you or unless you have self experience of it of either yourself or a family member or somebody or you have a keen interest in it your knowledge about it will be very limited and I am guessing that it's the same for other non-communicable diseases too. So it's almost like I can I can understand to a to a certain extent the that the lack of information and lack of education is what causes that that stigma. I think the stuff that I am grappling with is that that stigma is so pervasive with even amongst medical professional and oftentimes a lot more so um, and that there's such a big misunderstanding about um, you know certain aspects around mental health in particular in the medical community and I think you know when talking about the pharmacist you know that that is another level of medical professionals that needs to have some sort of empathy towards your situation you don't have to understand it but certainly that's something that you can express a basic sense of empathy towards and not interrogation towards that's the level of stigma that I really really am grappling with and specifically because mental health is so complex and there are so many different schools of thought on psychiatry and psychology that stigma in that community be- becomes really difficult to navigate and you really get very interesting and sometimes awful feedback from you know from people in that community which can be devastating especially when you are high functioning i recently put a tweet out and it was really it's really more about like what what I do or what I see as a mental health advocate and and one of it was that you know I I do have a mental illness but I am also high functioning and that in itself comes with with its own set of stigma because people often don't believe that you have a mental illness or they do and they think that you you might be faking it a bit or um you have to kind of like explain yourself a little bit more but you also have a different level of expectation as well you know like you are expected to you know to perform because you have been doing it all along so when you do slack off a bit it's it's often difficult to to explain yourself um and to feel comfortable in a space where you say yes i i can't handle this or i you know i'm I'm not able to reach that. So I've got a lot of respect, Job, that you were able to say that even though 
you know, you saying that it's the easy way out, I think oftentimes, you know, when you're in that situation, you need to be looking at your best possible option and that is a good option for you at that at that point. And that's yeah, that's that's difficult because that's again that like you mentioned, the internal stigma is so so intrinsic to the communal stigma and and it, it can be attached to a very specific group of people, which creates this whole cultural stigma. And in, and in particular in psychiatry, it, it becomes very complicated, very complicated mess <laughs> to, to navigate. I think that it's true that we didn't fully appreciate the point that you made around uh, health professionals and the, the fact that they have to navigate this and how they navigate this has a huge impact on the, the patient or client or person living with an NCD's experience. Um, and, and actually a big shout out to the show Atypical that I just finished because uh, it covers this for autism and what it is to be a high functioning autistic person mm. or person living with autism rather. Um, and I started to really enjoy it once I spoke to my father about it because he spoke about how it, it really appealed to him in living with bipolar disorder because it, it kind of address some of the same things that you feel very like you want to belong and yet society makes that more and more difficult but that human connection can also so often be the the kind of cure to that and I think about how you know the first doctor that ever gave my father his HIV diagnosis also did not pull away from him and was very warm and open when he said it. And while my father says that he had other much more difficult experiences dealing with this with health professionals later on, that that experience in the beginning really helped him shape from, from the start how he was going to approach living with that disease. And, and this, this role of the health professional is very, very critical. It's, it's good that you, that you bring this up. I really appreciate kind of what you guys have shared and, Kind of grappling with this idea of, of internal stigma, but also how it relates to doctors and people I've, I've come across, I think less so with the cancer piece, but with the immune disorder, most people, including most medical professionals, have never heard of, of what I have or are very familiar with the primary immune disorders, um, let alone CVID. And there's this sort of if anyone does know anything about them, the, the sort of place that they go initially is, is the sort of bubble boy situation where it's sort of someone that's, that doesn't really have an immune system, can't really come into contact with anyone who's sick or um, you have to kind of be careful. So I, what's, what can be frustrating is sort of, I think I, I really want to prove that, someone with CVID can be, can work in a high kind of high profile, like I push myself at work, I push myself to continue to be able to play soccer and go hiking and do, do all of these things. I'm a stubborn person to begin with, but um, you kind of want to prove that, that someone dealing with an NCD is, is just, can do everything just like everyone else. So I feel like I put myself through that own internal stigma of, of kind of not 
not wanting to contribute to the external signal, not wanting to contribute to people's assumptions that that someone who's sick can't kind of function or be normal. Or um, I think I push myself and get into situations where I do make myself sick because I'm not being careful. I'm taking risks. I'm um, pushing myself too hard. But I think when it comes to the relationship with professionals, uh, medical professionals, because they're so unfamiliar, um, there's sort of this isolation of there isn't necessarily what Chantal was talking about, where people have different different perspectives on it. No one ever has an answer. And so when I ask questions of, I'll have a doctor tell me I can't have any raw food, and then another doctor go, oh, no, it's fine. And so you're sort of sorting out these things um, in isolation. You don't really know what your limits are. You don't. Um, so it's then hard to educate anyone else and hard to to kind of push against the stigma around what it means to to have a really um, vulnerable immune system. And um, I most doctors who kind of come in contact with me, I become kind of an experiment for them. They get so excited about working with something that they're not that familiar with. Um, but I'm like, it, it's my life and I, I do need to know how to structure it and how to kind of live within the world. And yeah, I just, I get caught in that. I think I, yeah, I just, I don't know. That was, that was a little all over the place, but um, it, it's such a, to be able to trust who you're working with and to have them help you, help give you a blueprint to then educate others is so important. And I feel like I, I'm missing that in a lot of ways. May I give the example that I mentioned earlier? Because this is quite mind boggling and it's a good story. So sorry, I genuinely was just eating cookie dough during the podcast, apologies. Um, so when I was in grade nine, so around 14 or 15, in high school, I, I was with a few friends and we were we we would go across the street from our high school to the, the Lutheran church there. And we were singing in a church choir, not because any of us were particularly religious, but because there was going to be a trip. And we were really excited about being able to go on a trip when we're at that age. And I had been acquainted with this church since I was younger. My mother had joined because she was dating someone and, and in the church. And that's kind of how it went. Um, and she had relied on the church guidance counselor, or, or I don't know the, the official name, but this is a different example of professionalism gone very wrong. So um, she had confided, I guess, about my father and about the challenges of raising me alone for the most part at that time. And this group of friends there were a few of them that were sophomores and they had a driver's license at age 16 and one day on the weekend we went to Walmart where they had um, a huge ream of bubble wrap like pounds and pounds of bubble wrap for five dollars and we at that age thought it would be really cool to buy all that bubble wrap and then we took it to the car and we're just popping it and taking photos. It was really strange. So it was just a lot of bubble wrap in a car, wrapping our bodies in it, being very playful, acting like fools because we're teenagers. 
And these pictures somehow got into the hands of some of the parents who, who decided to accuse us of having done LSD in bubble wrap form. And this didn't make any sense to us. Um, and I freaked out and I, I told my parents and my father was living back in, in, in Texas with us uh, from Canada at the time. And he looks up LSD in bubble wrap form and it doesn't look anything like bubble wrap. It's like blue and, and he kept thinking, look at the quantity of bubble wrap in the car. Where would you have the money to purchase all of this LSD? Like none of this makes sense. So my father being a champion at heart and being a very informed one and a very articulate one when he gets going, he brought this to the attention of the church and these other parents. He said, this is absolutely unacceptable that you would blame your children of this, you know, and get them out of the church choir and try to cancel the trip. This makes no logical sense. And I was so proud and my friends were so glad that one of the adults was listening to us. And uh, within a week, I was no longer able to see any of those people again. Uh, of course, we found ways. But what had happened is that the church guidance counselor had told the other parents of the church that my father was mentally unwell, crazy. So even though he was championing us and with every kind of sense of logic on his side, the church counselor threw him under the bus, essentially. Oh, he's crazy. And then suddenly, by association, I could not spend time with these kids. And uh, this, is, this is one of those really interesting moments because it's society. It's society in, in the south of the U.S., very church, religion types of structures and, and a lot of power in these institutions. But my mother's privacy was completely broken uh, as, as this woman then made this huge case about, against my father, which completely distracted from the issue that <laughs> the parents of these kids were accusing them of doing such vast quantities of LSD, which when you're 14, 15, and 16, like, you know, I've still never seen this in, in real form in real life. So uh, it, it's quite an amazing example, but one that you, when you deal with this on a daily basis, you start to realize it's a lot more recurrent than, than you think. Because the minute that something feels out of control, it's very, very, very easy to blame someone who is living with a, a, a mental illness. Uh, and, and in this example, it's not a health professional, but in fact, someone else who is supposed to embody a trusted person who, who used it uh, as her own armor in some way. So one I wanted to share on a subject of stigma because it's quite uh, extreme. Wow. Can I, can I share something real quick on, I guess, on a health professional and how, for me, a health professional kind of made my journey a bit difficult. Like, I, I get they understand your condition more than the general public. But for me, and I, I dare say for a lot of people who have chronic kidney disease, it's a bit different because we're, we're many of us, you know, unlike, unlike my, for me, like when you go to stage five of kidney disease, we're, we're in millions, we're, we're many of us. And so it just felt when I would face a health professional, it used to feel 
like I'm just another number, you know. I, I didn't feel special. I used to feel when I saw my doctor, he was just trying to get through and go to the next patient. And that was really hard for me in the beginning because he would hardly stay with me for more than a minute. And so I had to read up on my condition. And that to me was my turning point because I, I realized that yes, the doctor is knowledgeable and they know about the condition or what you're going through. But on the other hand, if, for example, you're going through a condition that there are so many other people going through, they hardly have time to see you. They hardly have time to actually specialize and help you through it. And so for me, I ended up kind of feeling like a doctor. I, I thought in the beginning the doctor would be my saving grace, but I ended up finding out that my doctor was so brief and so in a rush to go and see other patients. And it's not his fault. I think it's more of this. It's a systemic problem where there are so many doctors and so much more patients. And so they don't really have the time. They're usually overwhelmed. And for those who know, a kidney doctor is called a nephrologist. And so they tend to have many patients. And that, for me, really was difficult in the beginning. But Maya said something that resonated with me. And, you know, when our conditions are so interesting because we're on immunosuppressants to reduce our immunity and you're, you're getting immune, like your immunity boosted. So it's, it's such an interesting kind of contrast. But for me, I wanted to say that when we try so hard, because I resonated so much when you said you try so hard to be normal and go to work and do everything that you're supposed to do at this age and like everyone else is doing. But I feel in some, in some way, when I, I do that as well, where I, I go out and I try and push myself. But I don't know if you feel this, but I feel like we're trying to to fit into what's normal a lot of the time. And in as much as it's good, I also feel that I'll never attain normal. And that was one of the light bulbs that went on, like on in my head was I shouldn't put my bar up as everyone else i should kind of put my own standard and that made me understand my condition more like i, I kind of now put into perspective my body and my, my condition in my dreams and ambitions whereas before it was when i'm talking to my friends everyone is doing their thing and i used to feel like i have to be here i have to do this I have to but these days i just look at myself as an individual and i know what i can and, and i what I can and can't do, I think, is where I'll be. And I factor that into my dreams and ambitions. Whereas before, I used to just kind of go with the flow and everyone everyone wants to do this, so I want to do that also. But now I kind of look at myself. I've grown to the point where I've accepted that, okay, I might never be like so-and-so or my friend who can do this, where before we were, you know, very close in what we used to do. And... In that acceptance, I feel that I'm a lot easier on myself, you know, and that has helped me deal with that internal stigma more because I can, I can kind of build my own, my own goal, you know, my own ambition. I don't have to have a standard that everyone else is striving towards. I can move my my goals and my my aims to where I need to, so that I can reach there without straining myself because 
living with a, a transplant, for example, you know, I, I have so much follow-up and so many things to do that it affects, obviously, my productivity. And so in that, I, I don't get as frustrated as I used to be. You know, I schedule my work better. I rest. I slow down. I, I don't go out as much as my friends do. I'm, I'm just, I, I learned how to adjust to it. And I feel that it would help if more of us who have chronic illnesses would tell people that, yeah, maybe you can't run as fast, but you can jog, and that's fine. But a lot of times we kind of put ourselves to the same standards as we used to before, because for me it was quite drastic. Before I was just a 24-year-old, I could do everything, and then now I have all these things I have to manage on my health side that other 24-year-olds don't have to do. So for me to put myself up to that standard and say I have to run with them and I have to do this and I have to do that, then it becomes very challenging on on myself. And then it should affect my mental health because then I feel like, oh, I've not done this. I'm feeling at this. I can't do that. My friends are here. You know, so you start becoming super hard on yourself when really you've just adjusted your point of view and you now have a new way of looking at things and you have your own goals, you have your own ambitions. And that in itself relieved me of so much of that stress and I have to keep up because I felt like, you know what, I have a new track. I'm going my own way. I'm going at my own pace. And that's one, that's one thing I would like to tell people out there is that, you know what, you don't necessarily have to keep up with people your age or people who don't have a condition or people who have a condition and are doing so much. You don't, you don't have to. You can find your own pace, and that's fine. Yeah, that's so important. And I, I kind of internally struggle with that. But I think as I've kind of grown into what's going on with me with the immune stuff, I've, I have gotten to a place where... I know first and foremost, if I'm getting sleep, that helps with everything else. And when I do start to feel sick, as much as I want to go to, like I had a friend's Halloween party a few weeks ago and I was kind of at the end of getting over, when I get a cold, that cold can last a month and a half, which is always so, so frustrating, but kind of choosing not to do the thing to kind of sit home with the tea and and sleep and kind of make those choices. I think it is so important and where I have kind of come across role models who may not exactly have CVID or people, the the couple of people I've gotten to meet through going to educational sessions, um, some of the most helpful advice is exactly what you, you just sort of walk through a job and, um, I remember in college, I I was diagnosed with cancer uh, second semester of my junior year. I stayed home and went through treatment and then kind of went right back into school. Um, and I sat down with my advisor and was like, senior year, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. And then I'm just going to dive right back in. And um, I was also dealing with the loss of a friend. And so there was all of these other things happening. Um, and my advisor who had had ovarian cancer, she just sat me down and was like, no one, no medical professional, no one in your life who was with you through the treatment, no one other than a cancer survivor is going to be able to tell you that like the six months after having cancer can be as hard as going through treatment. You're just sort of dealing with so much unresolved kind of emotional stress and especially when you're young, that kind of vulnerability to grapple with that for the first time. And then you're dealing with grief on top of that. 
Um, and so she just shut, shut me down. It's like, it's okay to slow down. Like, it's okay to acknowledge what's happening with you and kind of slow down. And I kind of still struggle with that 10 years later, but at the same time, kind of where I feel the most in control is when kind of regardless of, of who's giving me what advice or regardless of sort of what perceptions I'm seeing around, um, me and my, like, I, I really don't appreciate when, when someone like I'm, I kind of grew up in a, with a bunch of brothers and I'm pretty competitive. And so I always, I always, if someone tells me I can't do something, I always want to prove that I actually can. Um, and so when a friend decides that they're sick and I shouldn't hang out with them, like, let me decide, let me decide. But I think as I've sort of matured and listened to the really positive advice of it's okay, it's okay to not push yourself always and kind of feeling good 95% of the time, but not doing all of the things that you thought you would be doing at this age is so much better than, than, pushing and only feeling good 50% of the time and yeah I think it's sort of something I'm trying to internalize and push against but also kind of I I really appreciate kind of job you that you're kind of working to tell other people that and yeah it's a it's a hard balance I um I really resonate with that and and even more so recently, I was at the UNICEF Leading Minds Conference, and it was uh, it was very much about mental health and mental health in adolescence. And I I was able to do the final speech of the conference, and I ended with with the following: where I said that. Only once people feel truly supported and protected can we begin to eliminate stigma-related behavior in our society. And I wanted to know your thoughts on it, um, what you felt about it. But for me, I felt like, you know, yes, stigma needs education. And yes, we, you know, people will be more empathetic when they are educated. But for me, structural stigma can only really be addressed if we if we build structures that supports and protects people in vulnerable positions. Um, because that is that I feel like is is part of the problem is where you know when you when you aren't supported enough um, or protected enough you either don't feel comfortable coming out to talk about what you are dealing with. So that means you are reserving um, whatever you are and you are either creating internal stigma or you are using it as a defense mechanism in some way or another. Or you don't feel protected enough, which can go so many ways, but it if everyone don't feel the same level of protection, then people won't communicate in the same way. And I feel like those two things were very critical 
in my opinion, in tackling stigma and how we deal with that. And I wanted to know what your thoughts were on that. I thought Michaela was going to go, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, well, I think we've been following a rather rigid order, and I, I, I think we need to bring, we need to enliven the conversational aspect of this podcast because it's very like, now it's your turn, now it's your turn. Whereas I think um, that leads to all of us monologuing a little bit. I know. I, I was just, um, yeah, doing the introvert thing where I was like processing and waiting for someone else to like. Um, no, it's a really good question. And, and can you can you reframe it, Chantal? Because there was a lot of explanation, and I think I actually lost the core question in the in the in the in the in the meantime. I think you know. I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on that statement, and whether it either resonates with you, or do you feel like that is something that could could help in eliminating stigma? What are some of the things that you feel can be done, you know, apart from education or is there something that you thought of that would help in in ways that will address stigma, um, mainly feeling, feeling supported and being protected? Uh, I think that this, this aspect of human connection is so, it's so important and it's the best thing that we can offer each other because otherwise I think many of us start to look inward to our phones, to food, to alcohol, so many things when we lack connection uh, to other people. And I think that this podcast is a great example of looking to one another for support. And I think other storytelling pieces are so powerful. And that's why I think I'm such a heavy consumer of literature and media, because I think there's a lot of truth that comes out in these pieces. And that can be very powerful. And make you, but but the the crutch is that it can make you feel you're relating without relating. So I I probably go go inward more than I should because I feel I'm connecting to the stars of atypical over the course of the last few days. Um, but that actually removes me from real engagement. And that I think it's this storytelling is so so crucial. And I think even more so because, again, we're talking about our unique lived experiences, but these are based in a much larger context where NCDs, including mental health diseases, are on the rise. So, in fact, there are more and more people who are going to the workplace with diabetes who have to take their injections or with people living with anxiety who take medication or people who are struggling with immune deficiency disorders cancer or 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 heart disease and they're taking um what is that the statin yeah yeah, all right yeah so okay cool and i i think that we are less and less alone but we feel alone because we're not talking about it um because the more i talk about it the more i realize that the things i struggle with are not at all uncommon and uh my circumstances are not at all unique but it takes this storytelling piece. So when you, in terms of advice, there was one thing I wanted to make sure that I shared here, which I do believe I shared in May. Um, it's a line not verbatim from the book, The Collected Schizophrenias from uh, Esme Weijin Wing, and apologies if I don't pronounce that well, but she talks about how a popular theory for like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, because she lives with a schizoaffective disorder, which is a mix of the two, 
is that those living with um, mental health issues are uh, touched by the gods in some way. This is something my father has been completely compelled by in the past. And she writes, who that is touched by the gods ever has it easy. And I think that's so powerful. And in fact, stories of, of great tragedy and, and battle and survival and death are very common in our, in our narratives. You know, you look to Greek mythology and it's all over the place. But somehow we no longer see people as the heroes of these stories who are the heroes of these stories. Uh, and I find that super, super powerful and reminds us that we've been connected by these narratives for a long time. Yeah, I think just the there is sort of a, a in talking about this all now, um, I think kind of I narrow in on, on my challenges and the things and think back at the people who were really helpful, helping really helpful in, in me navigating all of it. And, and so much of the, the people I was the most touched by were other cancer survivors. There were a couple of people that I was in university with who I didn't even know had had cancer um, a few years earlier when they were in their teens. And they reached out, my kind of college advisor who had had her own history of cancer my cousin, my first cousin had the same rare form of lymphoma and he was so incredibly helpful. There was another family in the community. Um, and I kind of, I always try to be that lifeline for other people when, when either someone comes to me or I hear it and kind of ask questions that only someone who's been through it would know to ask and, um, and provide advice both for kind of interacting with someone going through it or the family um, kind of, I've, I've always tried to sort of, this is going to, this piece of it's going to be hard for you, um, in terms of how they're going to want to approach this. And, um, this is what I found frustrating for my own family when they said it. And this, I found really, really helpful. I think that's so important. I think to kind of Michaela's point around literature, I, one of the things I was I was an anthropology major, um, so it was sort of right there for me. But one of the things that I did to help cope with what was going on with me as I went back into school was was to get interested and 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 kind of look at cancer from um, not really an academic standpoint. But I did there was an anthropology seminar my senior year where we were supposed to do kind of a discourse of literature. And I was, I read sort of cancer narratives as they've been presented. And I went to this little local library in rural Iowa where my school was and picked every book on the shelf that was a kind of biography of someone who had gone through cancer. And so it was uh, comedians and celebrities and um, kind of it was, it was a very Western Western take on it, and it was obviously kind of mostly celebrities who had the ability to get a book deal talking about something like that. So it was a very specific kind of set of narratives. But it was fascinating for me because it solidified, it honestly solidified some of the things I was pushing on against the cancer narrative of like, that there's this sort of, you win, you lose, you. Um, but it also came across, Gilda Radner was a comedian on SNL, and she wrote, a really beautiful 
book because um, she started out with that sort of trope. The, I got cancer, it sucked, this is everything that I've learned, I'm glad I got it. Um, And in that process, she ended up recurring. And so things weren't sure when she was writing the book. And I think it's one of the only examples of someone writing it while they had cancer, not after they had kind of won and gotten through it. And she kind of destigmatized the whole thing of there is a, like, there's so many profound things to having illness and there's so many things that you will be better for having gone through that. But also you, there is no beginning, middle and end. There are moments that will just be frustrating that you don't have to sort of look at the roses and, and learn something profound from it and, Sometimes it just sucks and that's okay. And um, I think seeing someone kind of write those words down and reading kind of other people's take and seeing that resonate or hearing other people's stories and seeing it resonate kind of gives you power to kind of be that mentor for somebody else. And I kind of, this conversation is reminding me that I have that responsibility for other people, regardless of whether or not they have cancer or CVID. Like there's so many ways that people who are living through it can, can be helpful in terms of giving something a sense of what they might come across or just letting someone have a safe space to be able to kind of Chantal's point, to be supported, to be able to, talk about what's happening in their words and not feel like they have to perform for anyone. They can talk about the good, the bad, the, the kind of whole, whole bit of the experience. I suppose it also, and that's, that's brilliant. Thank you. Like, I think, you know, creating those safe talking spaces is absolutely critical because that's, that really is a way um, for us to, to be able to relate to each other and also like learn. So I think for me, what resonated with your whole speech, Chantel, and I think also Michaela and Maya kind of touched on this was the, the safe spaces, as you're saying. And having those safe spaces for me, I've been trying to create safe spaces here in, in Kenya in regards to kidney transplantation and hopefully organ any organ transplant you know including heart or liver there, there's so many i guess different types of organs that can be transplanted and we don't have those conversations so a lot of times we don't have safe spaces to talk about them and on to my point on stigmatization you know you you have to be vulnerable to connect with people but then you have to be vulnerable with the right people and i think that's where these safe spaces come in handy because when I'm vulnerable in a room full of people who've had kidney transplants or any other chronic illness or non-communicable disease, the things that we resonate with and would be more sensitive about than if I was to be vulnerable in a room with people who have never gone through this or don't know anyone who's gone through it. So that is a different, I guess we have to be very sensitive about who we open up to and how we open up. And that's a lesson, a lesson I'm learning because I feel like that is a very key component of 
kind of fighting stigmatization because now in a room of people who've gone through or who have chronic illnesses, when I open up, people resonate, people get encouraged, people hear different points of view, and then we can go out there and be ambassadors, as you may, and through that speaking and being ambassadors and telling our stories, we can touch people and get them to understand life through our lenses without being too vulnerable to, I guess, make us feel worse. You know, I think you can, sometimes you can be too open and too vulnerable to the point that it starts affecting you negatively because you're opening, you're opening up in spaces where people don't understand. And so the questions and the responses actually eat away at you, like they'll take away what you're building and what you're trying, your vulnerability. But then when you have that safe space, it's everyone is opening up and, and actually Chantel, you, you referred to that in, in your, in the conference you went to, that if you create the safe spaces, it's, it's a very key component. And I've seen here in my country, it's, we don't really have safe spaces. And I don't know if that's because, I don't know if they're difficult or there are not enough people who are opening up to create them. But I'm trying to start there personally in terms of stigmatization because I've seen that when we have those safe spaces to open up, then we can do, I guess, awareness campaigns and those campaigns can become lobbying and pushing for for change at a bigger picture kind of level. So the, the, the beginning point for me, even before the art and, and all, all that, I feel like we need to have spaces where we can open up and, and be vulnerable and they're safe. And then from there, you can look at different forms to reach out, different forms to raise awareness, and different forms to lobby and to get into the politics of changing how non-communicable diseases are dealt with by by the governments, at the health, health health systems levels, by health professionals. You know, you can actually start because you're a group and you're, you have a voice, you're, you're stronger as a group. But without that, you wouldn't really have much to to go by because without that sure we're like individuals going through our things and we have an impact in our communities and the, the people we interact with but to step it up to a, a national level or to a global level we need to have big enough safe spaces so that people can understand it's okay to open up so that it can grow so that people can reach out to more people and then stigmatization can become something of the past in regards to chronic illnesses Thanks, Shelby. I definitely, definitely agree. And I, I think what I wanted to say earlier is that it, it kind of also forces you to have difficult conversations um, and in those spaces and also difficult conversations with, with people who are not in those spaces and often needs to be in those spaces. And I think, you know, unfortunately, our... Not unfortunately, I think fortunately, we've, we are in a position where I think we are we slightly more empathetic at, or maybe actually PC is the right word. Um, I think we've, we are we're all trying to be very PC, but sometimes in that we also struggle to find the, the robust conversation about things that is that needs to be addressed and I think you know 
that will that robust conversation will only happen once you do feel protected you know if you feel like at least when I say this I will be protected somehow or if I am able to voice you know something that's really difficult you know then I will be supported or protected either either by legally or by your own community or a communities like on the other side of the world academically whatever the case might be that you know you're able to ad- address those conversations while feeling supported and and being protected but i think yeah i think this was really great for me to understand some of the levels of stigma that you know we all kind of deal with every day it's it's certainly a very complex phenomenon and i met somebody who studies stigma and she's got a phd in stigma and that's her main cause that she's research about the levels of stigma so it beca- it's a very very complex phenomenon um, or not a phenomenon like a, a concept i suppose so i'm really grateful that you all shared this with with me and with everyone and as usual our monthly support group came at the right time <laughs> so i wanted to say thank you we do unfortunately miss our fifth element which is grace um she i know she couldn't join us today unfortunately um so we're hoping to hear her voice next time thank you for joining us today please listen out for more chronicles podcast episodes on soundcloud or visit www.ncdchild.org for more information